Philippians chapter 2, from verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, how many of you have been enjoying watching the Men's Football World Cup in Qatar this week? I, am, I imagine some of you will have enjoyed tuning in to watch a few of the games, and uh, some of you will have avoided it like the plague. Um, we're all different, aren't we? Um, but I spotted a fascinating story on Wednesday this week that I wanted to share, and I thought it would be a good place to start. The fans who've gone to Qatar to watch the matches have obviously all spent a huge amount of money trying to get there. Um, they've got to pay for flights, they've got to pay for accommodation, and then they've got to pay for match tickets. And I haven't, I haven't looked to see how expensive they are, but I imagine these people are spending hundreds, possibly even thousands of pounds to be there and enjoy the spectacle. At the end of a football match, if you've ever been to one, or, or any kind of large event, the stadium, the auditorium, whatever it may be, is normally littered with all kinds of rubbish. Coke cans, crisp packets, half-eaten hot dogs, sandwiches, you name it, it's probably there somewhere. And football fans, at least in this country, are not renowned for um, their impeccable manners and tidiness, are they? It's not what you associate with a typical football fan. But the story I spotted this week was talking about how after watching their team beat Germany um, by two goals to one, the Japanese fans stopped to tidy up the stadium after themselves. Um, there are pictures of them walking around, gathering up sackfuls of rubbish and leaving the stadium um, immaculately clean and tidy while the stewards are just watching on. Um, it's remarkable, isn't it? They've paid thousands and thousands of pounds to be there, and here they are performing this simple act of service, being considerate of the people coming after them. It's remarkable, I think, and hence they got a write-up in the BBC Sport pages. And actually, I mean, it's, it's kind of a silly example, isn't it? But service is remarkable in all sorts of different contexts, isn't it? So every year we celebrate... Mother's Day, to celebrate the service of mothers to their children. Every year, we observe Remembrance Day, to give thanks for the members of our armed forces who've served and given up their lives to defend our freedom. 
We remember acts of service, don't we? They're remarkable. And of course, we have a reminder here before us, as Christians, we remember how Jesus served us, don't we, with this remembrance of bread and wine, to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus given for us. That's how Jesus came to serve us, isn't it? He gave himself up for us, and we remember him. Unselfish, sacrificial acts of service are striking. They're special. They're worthy of acknowledgement. And at the center of the passage that we're going to be looking at this evening is the humility and the service of the Lord Jesus. We're going to be spending most of our time uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, in the middle of the passage that Ryan read to us. Uh, and then we're going to draw a couple of applications from the verses immediately before and after that short section. In the passage that we're looking at today, then, if you've got it open before you, that would be really helpful. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's concern is that the Philippian church should have a Christ-like mindset. He wants them to have a Christ-like mindset. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I want you to be like Jesus in your mindset. So we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about what that mindset is, and then we're going to think about how we can apply that to our own lives. For those of you who like to take notes, I've titled this sermon, The Humility of Jesus, because I think that's the essence of what Paul is pointing us towards in these verses, the humility of Jesus. And Paul starts by pointing out where Jesus came from. Firstly, Jesus is God. That's the first point. Jesus is God. The end of verse 5, Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, being in very nature, God. Paul is saying that Jesus, in his very nature, is, was, and always will be, God. Jesus is God. Now, if you're less familiar with Christian teaching, this is something that's very important to grasp. This is foundational to Christian thought. Jesus in the Bible is not just a great teacher or a good man or a wise leader. Jesus is God himself. And that's consistent throughout the accounts of Jesus. If you um, were to flick back through the gospel stories, you see the divine power of Jesus at work. Um, you see power over sickness. You see power over evil spirits. You see power over nature. You see power over death. And these are signs in the word of the Apostle John um, given to us that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But e even those majestic miracles are only a small glimpse of the mighty power of Jesus. If you read John chapter 1, and don't, I'm not suggesting we turn to it now, but you see another clear assertion that Jesus is God. John says he was there at the beginning, that he is the one through whom all things were made. He's the one who said, let there be light. Let the water teem with living creatures. Let the land produce living creatures. Let us make mankind in our image. He's the one through whom all things were made. That's Jesus. 
Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the source of all life. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thank you, James, for reading Colossians 1. It's a great place to start, isn't it? Jesus knows and comprehends the smallest particles in the furthest flung stars in our galaxy. He holds all of these things together in his powerful hand, and he always will. Jesus is not some type of junior god. He's not a, if you're into your Greek mythology, he's not a Hercules-type demigod. Jesus is the mighty God himself. He is one with the Father. He's fully and truly God in all of the majesty and the holiness and the sovereignty and the goodness that that title indicates. He's greater than we can even think to imagine. And this fact that Jesus is God is fundamentally important to the Christian faith. Jesus is God himself who came to save us. But if we're thinking this evening specifically about the humility of Jesus, it's important that we start here because we can only understand the humility of, the Jesus, of, of Jesus if we understand the height from which he came down. We can only understand Jesus, or begin to understand Jesus' humility if we understand the height from where he came down. Jesus is in very nature God, the highest of heights. But he chooses to humble himself. That's the first point, Jesus is God. And secondly then, if we continue looking through verse 6, Jesus lets go of his rights. This Jesus, who is God himself, is willing to let go of what's rightfully his. It says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The glory, the privilege, the pleasure and the joy that came with his divine status were not things he was unwilling to let go of. He was willing to deprive himself of them, to relinquish them, to set them aside for a time. I wonder if any of you have ever watched an episode of Undercover Boss um, I haven't, as it happens, um, but I'm fascinated by the concept. It sounds really interesting. The idea of this is a television program. The idea is that uh, a senior management figure in a large corporation um, goes undercover and, and enters employment at a very junior level in the same organization to find out what it's like to work in that firm. Um, perhaps um, it's the, the chief executive of a hotel chain um, coming in to find out what it's like working on the ground uh, in reception or uh, providing room service or cleaning. Um, now, a, an analogy like this is, is clearly woefully insufficient to describe what Jesus did. Um, CEO to receptionist is a much, much smaller leap than God to man, but I'm just trying to illustrate a single point here and that is when, when a CEO chooses to take on a role like that, he willingly chooses to set aside many of the perks of his role, doesn't he? Um, and the privileges of his position. He, he leaves behind the big corner office with the view across the city. He leaves behind the swanky 
company car and the chauffeur. He leaves behind the secretary who makes his tea and his coffee and gets his lunch. Uh, he loses the, the respect and the, the dignity of his position in order to serve his purpose. He voluntarily sets those things aside. And in a similar sort of way, Jesus, worthy of all honor and praise and glory as God himself, is willing to set aside the glory that is rightfully his, to come and do some really dirty work, to come and serve a purpose. He doesn't, he doesn't consider his privilege and glory as God himself as something to be used to his own advantage. He's willing to leave it to one side to serve God the Father. And so as Jesus humbles himself, if you glance down to verse 7, um, we see that it's something he does of his own volition. He's willing to set his glory aside and he chooses to make himself nothing. Look at verse 7. Uh, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. It's something he does himself. He makes himself nothing. He sets aside his glory and he makes himself nothing. It's a choice that Jesus makes. So when Paul speaks of the mindset of Jesus, when he's encouraging the Philippian church to have the same mindset of Jesus, this is the first part of that mindset. Jesus doesn't grasp at his own privilege and glory, but he's willing to let go of his rights in order to serve. And he willingly, voluntarily chooses to humble himself. So Jesus is God. Jesus lets go of his rights. And thirdly, Jesus becomes a man. As he willingly relinquishes his glory, Jesus humbles himself and becomes a man. Verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. I think the flow of Paul's thought here seems to indicate an equivalence between those three states described here. He made himself nothing, number one. He takes the very nature of a servant, number two, being made in human likeness, number three. I think each of these three statements describes the same thing from a slightly different angle. For Jesus to make himself human is to make himself a servant and to make himself nothing. Now, it, I wonder if it's possible that we could file our, our pride pricked a little bit here. Um, is Paul saying that to be human is to be nothing and that we're made to be servants? Well, in a, in a sense, I think, yes, he is. In, in the context of the created order in which we live, um, we know, don't we, that we're made to be rulers over what God has made. That was part of God's creation design for Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And we know, don't we, that there's a very special and precious dignity to human life because we're made in the image of God. It's also in Genesis 1. But in the context of considering that Jesus is God himself, we are so small, aren't we, that to all extents and purposes, we are nothing. Next to the great and mighty creator God, we are nothing. Jesus, 
has existed for all of eternity past. But we had a beginning. Jesus is the creator God, but we're created beings. Jesus is the source of all life, but we only have life and dignity because he gave it to us. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over every aspect of all of creation, all of the time. But we only have the authority he delegates to us. Jesus is to be worshipped as God. But we are made to worship and serve. There's a great gulf, isn't there, between God and us. Next to Jesus, we are nothing. We're very small, aren't we? And yet he chose to become like us. He chose to become small. He chose to become a servant, being made in the likeness of a man. Again, this is the mindset of Christ, isn't it? Having chosen to to give up his glory, to be willing to lay it aside, he humbles himself to become nothing. There's an interesting parallel, I think, in the language between verses 6 and 7, where the same phrase is used to describe Jesus' nature. In verse 6, he is in very nature God. In verse 7, he takes the very nature of a servant. There's a a clear parallel there, isn't there? And I think Paul's telling us that Jesus didn't, didn't come down in disguise. This isn't just a disguise. He didn't just make himself look like a man. He fully and truly became a man took on human nature. He made himself into one of us without ever giving up his divine nature. The Bible nowhere teaches that Jesus gave up his divine nature. He also made himself fully human, fully God and fully man. So as a man, Jesus became tired and he slept. He grew up and was subject to his parents' authority. He experienced pain and temptation. He experienced the same pressures and struggles that we experience. He had a human body. He experienced death. And I think this is where it can become really hard, can't it, to try and reconcile some of these things together in our minds. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? I think a really good example of this conundrum is um, to consider Jesus calming the storm. In Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew 8 verse 24, Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. He's a weak and tired man. But two verses later, in verse 26, he stands up to rebuke the wind and the waves. He is the omnipotent Lord of all creation. There is a weakness, isn't there, in his humanity as he sleeps, but an almighty strength in his divinity as he commands the wind and the waves. Well, how how can you be both weak and omnipotent at the same time? How can Jesus be both an infant dependent on his human mother without ceasing to be the Son of God who sustains all things by his powerful word? How can you have this human nature and a divine nature coexisting in the one person, Jesus? Well, I'm not going to try and answer that question. (laughs) What what I will say is Wayne Grudem has been very helpful to me this week, and I can point you to some of the reading I've done 
um, if that's helpful. Um, but I'm not going to rehash all of that right now. What I want to encourage you to do um, is not to let things we cannot fully understand drive you to despair. Some people would have us reject things that we can't understand, wouldn't they? Um, they'd say, I don't understand that, therefore it must be impossible. But I think, really, that's, that's just an intellectual arrogance, isn't it? If I can't understand it, it can't possibly be true. It's, it's better by far, isn't it, as, as James was saying this morning when we were looking at hard things in Exodus 4, to focus our thinking instead on what God has made clear for us. What has God made clear for us? In Philippians 2, God makes it clear that Jesus is fully God, that he chose to lay aside his glory and to become fully human in order to bring about our salvation. And when we focus our hearts on the things that we do know, the things that God has made clear to us, knowing them to be true and trusting that God knows the things we can't understand, then our hearts can be moved to amazement, can't they? And wonder and worship. I may not understand all of these things, but I worship God for what he, is, what he has clearly made known to me. And I worship him because he understands the things that I cannot Well, this again is the mindset of Jesus, isn't it? That's what we're driving at here. It's the mindset of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, lays aside his glory and humbles himself to become nothing, to become a servant, a mere man. And fourthly then, Jesus obeys to the point of death. Jesus obeys to the point of death. You see, Jesus goes further, doesn't he, than just stepping down from heaven and becoming a man. He doesn't stop there. Having humbled himself from being God to becoming a man, he humbles himself further still by being obedient all the way to the point of death. All the way to death on a cross. That's how far Jesus humbled himself. It's not a dignified death, was it? This was death on a cross. A slow, painful, torturous death reserved by the Romans for the worst criminals in their empire. In the eyes of the Jews, he was cursed. Cursed, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, it's written in God's law. The Romans despise him as a criminal. The Jews despise him as cursed. Jesus has gone from the highest of heights as the Son of God in glory to the lowest of lows, dying a criminal's death. Jesus obeys to the point of death. And who then is Jesus being obedient to? Who's he being obedient to? John six thirty eight. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Or John 14, verse 31, I love the Father, and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus' motive in all of this, in the first place, is obedience to his Father and love for his Father. His Father has sent him to be the Saviour for a lost mankind, and Jesus has obeyed. He's obeyed all the way to the point of death. 
And the father sends the son, doesn't he? Because the father and the son together have such a great love for the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. It's Jesus' love for his father. It's Jesus' love for you that bring him to a place where he's willing to humble himself and to die on a cross. This is the mindset of Christ. To come back to that mindset. It's the mindset of Christ. It's humility. It's a voluntary, self-denying, laying aside of his glory and privilege to become nothing. To become a man. To become a servant. To be obedient right down into the lowest of lows. Up to the point of a painful death because of his love for God the Father and for us. This is the mindset of Christ. So what are we to do with this understanding of the mindset of Christ? And I've got two quick applications for us to consider. Two quick applications. Firstly, be humble like Jesus in your relationships. Be humble like Jesus in your relationships. This application is lifted straight out of verses 1 to 5, the verses immediately preceding the ones we've just been looking at. Because Paul sets about telling us about Jesus' humility with a specific goal in mind, doesn't he? Verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Working to conform ourselves to the likeness of Jesus is a great biblical principle for all of life, isn't it? But here, Paul is specifically applying it to the area of their relationships with one another. The humility, the laying aside of privilege or comfort, the making himself nothing for the sake of others that we've seen in verses 6 to 8 is the Christ-like mindset of humility that Paul wants the Philippians to adopt in their relationships with each other. Paul wants them to be humble. He wants them to be willing to lay aside their own privilege. He wants them to be willing to serve one another. So when Paul says in um, chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Jesus is the supreme example, isn't he, of one who does nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He lays aside his own rights. He sets aside his glory and comes to serve. The people of the church should do the same. When Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others, Jesus is the, the supreme example, isn't he, of somebody who looks to the interests of others. This is all about being like Jesus in our relationships with others. Have the same mindset as Jesus. Have the same humility as Jesus. Don't look to your interests, but look to the interests of others, just like Jesus did. And Paul is really just echoing what Jesus himself taught his disciples here, isn't he? John 13, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus says, follow my example. And Paul here in Philippians 2 says, follow Jesus' example. In your relationships with one another, follow Jesus' example. So 
What does a church look like where people don't look to their own interests, but instead look to the interests of others? What does a church look like if we lay aside our rights and our privileges and make ourselves nothing so that we can serve others? What does that look like? What about hospitality? If I'm humbling myself uh, and no longer just thinking about what's comfortable and pleasurable for me, if I'm looking to the interests of others, the hospitality question changes, doesn't it, from hmm, who would we like to have round for dinner to who can I willingly and joyfully serve today? How can I meet their interests? It switches the focus from my interest and my comfort and my pleasure to the interests of other people. What about um, welcoming people? What about cleaning the church? What about Sunday morning stewarding or serving refreshments? I noticed on Tuesday night there's a sign um, blue tacked onto the side of the hatch saying that we need more volunteers to serve refreshments on a Sunday evening. And the question shouldn't be, will I enjoy that? Because that's looking to our own interest, isn't it? The question should be, is that a way in which I can usefully serve someone else in the church? That's looking not to our own interests, isn't it? But to the interests of others. A Christ-like mindset transforms the way that we look at other people in the church, doesn't it? It transforms our relationships. The, the examples I've just given are all um, examples with formal sort of rotated activities within the church, aren't they? But there are hundreds of unseen ways to serve each other as well that I know already go on regularly throughout the church. Perhaps it's looking after someone's children. Perhaps it's giving someone a lift somewhere. Perhaps it's making time to see someone. Humbling ourselves and thinking not, not just of what works for us, but of how we can serve someone just as Christ has served us. And if you're anything like me, my service is often far too me-centered, far too what works for me. But Christ disregards his own glory and comfort, doesn't he? And he gives himself to serve others. Let us, let us adopt that mindset as well. How can we serve how can we love other people so that when the outside world looks at us, they can say, well, they must be followers of Jesus because they love one another. Be humble like Jesus in your relationships. And secondly, second application, Jesus' humility is a reason for us to worship him. Jesus' humility is a reason for us to worship him. Look at Philippians 2, verse 9. Having spoken of the humility of Jesus, Paul says, Therefore, i.e. because of this humility and this obedience, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying that 
because Jesus has been willing to do these things, to humble himself, to become a servant, to obey to the point of death, because of that, God has exalted him. And I think in the context of verses 6 to 8, this exaltation is not for one specific act. It's because of the sort of person that Jesus is. It's because he's willing to lay aside his glory. It's because he's willing to humble himself. It's because he's willing to suffer on behalf of others. It's because of the beauty of his character and his mindset because of that beauty, isn't it, that he is worthy of this exaltation to the highest position. And I think if Paul were talking about anyone else apart from Jesus in these verses, you'd have to say that this sentence um, in, in verses 9 to 11 is completely over the top. There's a, there's a superlative adjective. Um, Jesus is exalted not just to a high place, that would be the regular adjective, or even to a higher place, that would be a comparative adjective, but to the very, very highest place, that's the superlative. It tells us that there is no position more exalted than Jesus' position. He's exalted over and above everything and everyone. And then there are three uses of the word every. Three uses of every. Verse 9. God gave him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And verse 11, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In every instance, Jesus is the rightful recipient of every praise, of every piece of honor, of every part of our worship. That's what it means to be exalted to the highest place, doesn't it? That's where God the Father has put Jesus. And if this is God the Father's verdict with regard to Jesus, if that's what God thinks of him, should that not be our verdict as well? If God says he is worthy of that praise and that honor and that worship, then surely we should too. We live in a world, don't we, that's obsessed with, um, with beauty that is shallow and vain and temporary. But here in the Lord Jesus is beauty that is worthy and meaningful and divine. Jesus' humility is a beautiful thing. Jesus' willingness to serve is a beautiful thing. His willingness to set aside his own glory is a beautiful thing. And God says that he is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. The beauty of Jesus' character outstrips the beauty of anything else in this world. I hope you've seen a little glimpse of that in Philippians 2 this evening. The beauty of Jesus. I hope I hope I've been praying all week that our hearts would be stirred to worship just as we consider for a moment who Jesus is and what he's like. His humility, his grace, his service. The hymn writer says, He held the highest place above 
adored by all the sons of flame, yet such is self-denying love, he laid aside his crown and came to seek the lost, and at the cost of heavenly rank and earthly fame, he sought me. Bless his holy name.